You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm excited to talk to Anna Baird today about unlocking yourself. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Asher. Happy Friday. Yep, you too. Now, there's something going on in this, like, let's call it podcastosphere, because the last four or five guests that I've had have all been like women in technology that have extensive careers. We had Tani Carter, we had Carrie Gerhardt, now we have you. And and each one of them, you know, was extremely transparent about everything that they did. So I just want to say thank you to all of them and to you for coming on the show and sharing with us how other execs could learn from all the experience and education exposure you've had to better themselves. But before we start, tell us how you got to where you are. Yeah. So that's a whole long story because I'm definitely a mutt. I've been a CFO, a COO, and I'm now a CRO. So working my way through the C's. I actually started out, so graduated college as an accounting major of all things and started out at KPMG, one of the big four accounting firms, but working with technology companies in Silicon Valley, loved tech, loved the pace, loved how it moved, especially the software side of the world. Fascinating to me. And I ended up at KPMG, thought I was going to be there two years and then go get my law degree. And I ended up being there 17 and a half years and making partner. And it was awesome. Went to the consulting side, worked on companies like Google pre-IPO for the next seven years. I was the global lead partner on Google and Intuit and a bunch of others. So I had a phenomenal career and got to see some of the amazing history of Silicon Valley, which you just, you know, it's a book, right? So that's that's my retirement project is the book (laughs) on what I've seen in Silicon Valley. I finally got lured away, um, actually by Dave DeWalt, who was the CEO of McAfee at the time. And uh, they were at about $2 billion. He goes, how do you help us from grow from 2 to $4 billion and not break? And Chuck Robel was on the board. And, and uh, it was a super fun time in their history, rebuilding that leadership team. And uh, then Intel showed up to buy us. So spent a year helping with a small team sell the company to Intel. Uh, and then I took a step back and said, okay, what do I want to do next? I didn't want to work for a big company like Intel. That was definitely not what I left KPMG for. I love building great foundations. So I started, uh, decided to do the startup side and started out as a CFO, then CFO and head of operations, and then CFO and president and owning go-to-market and success, and then COO. And uh, over the last two years, CRO, I think common threads are just a love of understanding how customers, products, and the business works. And that's really the foundation behind all that. And for those of you who don't know, as a partner at KPMG, you also have like a $6 million quota. So <laughs> there was selling back then. <laughs> Lots of selling. If you're not creating product, you're selling it. That's kind of the rule. <laughs> that, is right. that is right. So did you take a sabbatical in the middle? Is Is that, or did you take some time off? I, so when I left McAfee for the first time in my career, I took nine months and I took my family. We went to Fiji and Australia. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was fantastic. Actually, it was really fantastic. I'd never taken time off except when I had my two kids and my first one, I took nine weeks because I was stupid and didn't know any better. (laughs) So going back to work after nine weeks is a little intense. 
Yes. But I um, that learned better the second time. But it was awesome just to be able to, you know, take a step back and go, okay, what do I love? And what do I want to do? And I had people who told me during that time that I would never be a CFO, because I'd be going, Oh, you should go be a CFO. Well, I've never been one, right? You know, it's always who's gonna let you be the first one, right? Get put the first title on your no matter what title it is, like, Who's going to be the person who leans in and says, I'm going to take a risk on you. And I had recruiters going, you want to be a CFO? No way. You're never going to be a CFO. So to them, I say, hello. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason why I ask is because, again, this may be another data point, but all of the women leaders that I've had the pleasure of interviewing or spending some time with, right, all took some time off. Mm -hmm. Like and and it was amazing because none of the guys actually took any time off. They just went over and over again. I mean, on this podcast, I've done what now two hundred of these, and only the women actually took time off. And they and they said, you know what, we took time off, and then we were decided to take more time off, and then we came back, and and all the women are way more happier than some of the guys. You know, I'll just say it out there. I know this is being recorded, but that's the reality. And if you actually listen to the episodes, you'll actually see and pick it up in in the tone people use. So the kudos to you for like recognizing that you need to take some time off and just taking some time off. And I would, as a podcast host, now having like spoken with so many executives to the folks who are listening to this podcast, like if you think you need to take time off or if you're feeling you need to take time off, you already should have taken time off, right? And it's okay because nobody, I promise you, there's so much funding in tech and there's going to be so much more funding in tech that you will get to where you want to be. But if you lose yourself, it's very hard to come back. So just pull the plug, take time off, come back, and uh, you'll be a much happier person. Ashley, you know, we talk, I talk about this all the time because I had a coach who told me this once. She's like, I did this survey called the Berkman, which was this 400, you know, and, and so when I went to McAfee, they gave everybody a coach. And I'm like, I don't need a coach. What do I want a coach for? And they're like, no, everybody gets one. I'm like, okay, maybe this will be fun. And I meet this woman who was just phenomenal. And she was like, why don't you take the survey? It's called the Berkman. Had never heard of it. Did Myers-Briggs, all those things historically. And took this 400 question survey. And she came to meet with me after she got my results. And she said, okay, so when are you outside and when do you listen to music and what is it that you do around art I'm like what are you what does this have to do with my job like what are we talking about and she said Anna if you don't figure out as a leader how to do the things that replenish your soul and I use that term now all the time and this was you know, whatever, 10 years ago, easy, longer than that now. And she said, if you don't figure out how to replenish your soul, you're not going to be a great leader because you've got to figure out how you fit balance into your life so you can be the best leader you can be for the rest of your teams and for the company. And it is so 100% true. And it's funny what you just said. I, I think about it literally every week. I'm like, I haven't done anything to get outside. I hike. I love to cook. I garden. So I'm like, okay, how am I fitting that in music, art, obviously in different forms, but it was like, I've got to think about that consciously because you have to make time for it. You have to schedule it in. Otherwise it just goes, especially in in the pandemic now, right? The environment where you just lose it all. And my CEO just spent three weeks in Italy, took time off. Didn't, we didn't, nobody talked to him. He took three weeks in the middle of our crazy, you know, trajectory that outreach is on and I'm about to take two to go to Hawaii the first two yes. weeks of November and I'm not going to be on email. Fantastic. Well, to your coach, you probably did it like, hey, I'm busy trying to be CFO. You know, why do you want me to take time off? Like, come on now. <laughs> right, exactly. So great. All right, let's dive in. Almost every single exec that I've spoken with, and, and again, something's up, like I got to talk to my show people, right? They're doing a fantastic job because everybody has been extremely gracious about sharing openly like what they did to move through the exec ranks, right? And this theme has been going on for the last six weeks or so. There's a lot of a lot of examples that we've shared, but I would love to get some guidance from you for all the folks, and there's about 7,500 people that listen to the show around when you become an exec, 
moving up the ranks from there, let's let's learn like how you've you've gone through it yourself and like your tips because at least what I hear commonly. The common advice given to first-time VPs or second-time VPs is it's all about relationships. And I agree, it is all about relationships. I totally get it. But there's got to be other things that you just have to know about that help you through that phase. So I'll turn it over to you. I, I don't think it's all about relationships. I think there's there's a couple core things, right? I think you, you can't, and I, I tell this people because you get people who are super, super ambitious, and I love that, but they're ambitious before they're thoughtful about, are they doing a fantastic job at what they own today? Because if you're not doing a fantastic job at what you're owning today, which is part of what helps you build relationships, right? People trust you. Yes. They believe in yes. you. So you have to, at a core, do a fantastic job at whatever job you have. Saying you want the next thing without doing what you're doing well is never going to be a recipe for success ever, ever. And and I see that a lot where people are like, no, well, I, if I'll do the next thing even better than this. I'm like, well, until you get this, you're not getting the next thing. So stop and breathe yes. and do your job and try to take on things that look like the next job while you're doing your job so that you are showing your ability to scale. But I think it is also then if you are doing an amazing job at what you're doing, you've built that trust, you've built the relationships with leaders who, who look to you and go, okay, yeah, that person's a good, good executive or a good leader at this company. And then what you do is you look for opportunities, right? And so something goes sideways, something's not going quite right. There's something new that needs to be started. People are fearful and, and leaning in is not always everybody's first, first move going, okay, there's that whole thing over there that's breaking. I'm going to go hide over here under my desk and make sure my stuff's going okay. But wow, that's bad over there. And one of the things I've done and whether it's at first, I think sometimes it was just, I don't want to say by accident. I can't stand it when something's broken. I just can't. It drives me crazy. It's in my house. It drives me crazy. <laughs> at the office, it does, drives me maybe even more crazy. Like something doesn't look right. Something doesn't fit. Something isn't working. The thing that I have to go do before I can rest is fix it. And it is kind of core in my DNA. I think because the thing that got me to all the rules that I just mentioned was something was broken or something started to go sideways. And I said, I'm going to go in and see if I can fix it. And that always got me to another role, another opportunity. I learned something I never knew before, which built out my resume. Not intentionally, you know, like it was a little vongo and we had some product stuff totally going sideways. And me and four people over four months had to move distributors get up and running in new manufacturing, fill in parts for the old so that we can make sure we had enough for customers while we we're building the new, not letting the two distributors know we were moving from one to the other. We almost ran out of product. It was four of us in China picking new distributors, getting them up and running, building a whole brand new product and saving 30% of the cost all at the same time. I never, that was not something I'd ever done, ever. I was a software person. I don't go build product. I spent every night on the phone with China for months <laughs> so and, and flying there quite a bit. So you lean in and go, if it's already broken, I tell people this is how bad can you make it? And if it's already broken and people are afraid because it's broken or concerned about the risk, then ask for the resources you think you need to fix it. Because then people are going to go, yes, yes, please go fix it here. You know, what do you need? And people lean in to help you and you learn and they feel like you're partnering and listening and, and you end up with opportunities you never thought you would. So that's it in a nutshell. Fantastic. Well, so I feel like at least what I've picked up from all these conversations is you have to be ready to take risk, right? But you also have to be centered in yourself because there's a lot of, I would say, like I remember the first time I became a VP, right? Like there's a lot of anxiety around it, excitement, anxiety. There's all these things, right? And then people jump to to take on assignments that they don't think through. And so, and then that kind of lands you in trouble because 
then you look like an amateur, right? And so it's like, you do need to build relationships, but you do need to understand, like, take your time, don't rush, because if you rush, then you're going to make bad decisions. And then you're being watched by the quality of decisions you're going to make. And now if the macro trend totally shifted, and there was already a control, you're going to get a pass, right? But if everything was in your control, and you just completely messed it up by rushing through things, I guess what happens is too, those relationships get don't get built the right way. But then your assignments also flops, and you're, you're back to the, the point that you made, which is absolutely an important point, which is do the best work that you can in the role that you have, because the people that you are around are all going to be around with you for the foreseeable future. Yeah. No, I think you're so right. And one of the things that's it's funny, it's not about doing work. It's, I think, as you pointed out, take a step back and say, what outcome is the right outcome? And how do I build a framework to get from here to there? What are the things I need to get to the outcome that we need as a company, as a team, whatever you're stepping into to say is because you're always going to figure out what is the goal? We talked about this with customers, right? You're always thinking about what is their outcome? Yep. Everybody wants to, there isn't, it's not work without an outcome. You don't get rewarded doing yep. work without an outcome. And so you have to make sure you are clear and clear with the leaders that you're going to talk to about it, which is also the point you may take a minute and go, what outcome is success here? And ask several people who are the ones who would evaluate that, right? Yep. Is, if that's the outcome, if we all agree, because that's also important, getting everybody aligned on what a good outcome is yep. and then say okay so then how do you get from what resources do you need what process do you follow what time frame do you have yep. and give yourself milestones and i think the other thing you always do if you're going to take a risk and put yourself out there if it's not going well you need to stop and pivot quickly don't keep yes. trying to pretend everything's yes. okay when it's not yes Yes. This is the, the attachment factor, right? Because since you picked it up and then you put a lot of energy into it, now the previous thinking is like, make sure it gets done no matter what, right? But the executive thinking is you give it some time if it's not working, got to figure out a, a new home for this, right? Or you got to figure out where you're going to go next with it because yeah. staying in around, like, because, you know, like the, the executive system is, every three months, you're going to get a check in. You have to go present to somebody and then you have to present to your peers, which is technically your team, the people who you should be really accountable to and be build trust with, or the senior execs or the board, or like, you know, there's this regular reporting or roadshow, as I call it, that you're going to be on all the time. And people are going to know, right? Because you're just not going to be able to hide it. And so you might as well figure out that if the project is not going where you need it to be, pivot, go on to the next thing. And I guess I'll use a financial term, write it off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And just try to tie it up as best you can, right? That's I'm with you. Yeah. So let's talk about like, Moving up the ranks, right? Like, I guess there's this, like, you have to form as a VP and then you get to become a C-level person, right? And then what are the rules at that level? From the the VP level forming? Yes. So, like, say you're being a VP for 10 years, right? And then you're about to go take your first C-level role, right? Somebody actually called you up and said, hey, you know, come join me. Let's go, like, build a big company, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're a C-level. So what is the dynamic then? You know, I think as you're going from the VP to the C-level, I think it's it's some of what we talked about. That's probably where I did. I did it in both, honestly. So I'm going to, I mean, be transparent. The, the playbook isn't hugely different on how you think about when you look at, I want to do something at the company and people are like, I still remember when I was a CFO. People say, well, you know, why do you want to understand product or why do you want to understand what's happening with customers? I'm like, because that's how the business runs. I don't, I'm not going to understand the financials if I don't understand how yep. the business runs. And so... How are you educating yourself no matter what role you're in and how the business runs? So absolutely so critical. Not only obviously doing your job 
in a great way, like we talked about a little bit ago, but also making sure you have that intellectual curiosity. And I think that is such a huge skill in anybody. I look for it when I look for sellers. I look for it when I look yep. for leaders. Is like I want, it's that desire to understand. It is that desire to say, how does this work? And that is not just, you know, when I was a CFO, how financial statements work. Everybody, I know that, you know, debits, credit, we got all that stuff. I needed to understand what are customers saying? Why are they liking or not liking the product? What is product building? How does that influence what customers are saying? What's happening in the market? What is the ecosystem? Where are competitors? No matter what role you have, you need to understand all that because that's how the business runs. And so as a VP, being able to stop and say in a meeting, oh, I totally get what you're saying, or making sure you're listening when you're in meetings, you get invited all the stuff all the time where your peers are presenting, stop and make sure you're understanding, ask questions yes. to understand, because then you can add value. Once you understand the core of what they're doing or what they're building, then you can challenge, go, well, wait, what about this? Or, okay, so is this how that's working then? Not only does it look like you are engaged and you care, <laughs> but you have empathy for the role that they have, which is going to make you a better executive and understand the challenges they're trying to deal with. And then you're understanding the business better. And that is going to make you raise your visibility, but also make you a better leader. And then when you get into the C-levels, it's even more so because you are partnering with a smaller group of people who are running this entire business and understanding what's going on in their worlds is maybe four times as hard. I'm not quite sure yet. It's hard. There's a lot going on. I'm so glad you said that because I guess in my own journey, the very first CRO that I met was, his name was Pascal Vendoren. He's actually in Seattle. He was, this, he was the CRO of Avalar and then became the CRO of Galvanize, which I think he's probably retired by now, which is good for him. But he basically said, I remember almost in the, maybe the first or second meeting, it was like, go figure out and learn how this business runs. And then let's chat afterwards, right? I've never forgot that. And again, I'm saying this out loud for all the emerging executives that are listening to this podcast, because you have to do that. It's table stakes. Actually, I would just say, don't even go for a VP gig if you don't understand the business, because when you're there, it's again, too already too late to then go back and then go learn all this stuff because all your peers are already thinking like that, right? So that's point number one. Point number two, Anna's, to extending Anna's comment, if you're wrong about something, just admit it. Yeah, 100%. People will respect you more. I say this, it happens in sales. It's like when you tell a customer, no, you can't help them do something, you'll get 10 times more business from them because they respect you for being honest and helping them understand yep. how you can help or how someone else could. And I think it's the same in leadership. When you say, no, I can't do that. And I also, I try to do this with my team because I think it's so important for all of us, no matter what your title is, is to say, I don't understand that. Could you please explain that to me? Stop and say those words yes. because they're true a lot of the time. And people are afraid to say them because they don't want to look stupid. It's the opposite of that, honestly, especially if you are like owning it, going, okay, I'm sorry. Can you spend a minute, stop for a second and help me understand? I was telling I was telling you I got on my first, I had my first board of directors meeting. I got my first board seat on a company. Yep, congrats on that. Thank you. But I had my first board meeting and all the other board members have been on there and they're like, you know, CEO of Kayak and, you know, the president of the WNBA and I mean, like, the word's impressive. There was a, they were talking about a competitor and I don't understand the market quite yet. So I don't understand this competitor. So I'm literally writing myself a note to follow up the CEO so he can talk to me about this competitor. So I didn't ask the question because I'm like, I don't look stupid and they all know. So I'm just going to, you know, hang back here for a second. And literally one of the other board members who is one of the founding investors of the company said, I don't understand what's going on with that competitor. Can you please explain to me? What's, I was like, oh, yay. I'm not, I'm clearly not the only one. 
Finally, you know. But you forget that there's not only does somebody else maybe have that question, but you are going to get smarter because they stop to explain it to you. They're going to explain it way better yes. because they're trying to explain to help you understand. And they're going to respect the fact that you said, I don't get it and, and help me understand how what's going on here. It is so important to say, I don't know, or I don't understand. Stop, pause. Somebody else probably doesn't either. And you will get more respect for that because you're not always saying, oh, I got it. I understand everything. I know everything. Nobody does. And I guess we're going to get to the board piece in a a little bit. But if you are a VP level person who is about to get to a C-level role, right? At least my golden rules are make sure that you're in philosophical alignment with the CEO. Mm -hmm. Do not take a gig if you're not in philosophical alignment with the CEO because it's so important because you're going to spend an enormous amount of time. You're going to sometimes be a coach. You're going to be sometimes be the person that they call like late nights because they're just looking for a psychologist, right? There's like all these things that that will happen, right? And and this is really cool for for people who actually want to be CEOs that are listening to this. You should actually try to become a person who actually reports to CEO first to see if you're actually going to like the job. Because as another executive coach told me, you know, it's all fun and games until you're actually the CEO because everybody else around the CEO is just there to support that person. But you're actually in the hot seat. And so just be careful about like the things that people wish for. And I'm like, okay, you know, that was the first time somebody paused me to think about that. But again, I'll go back to the point is make sure you're in extreme philosophical alignment professionally and personally about the company that you're going to build, the lives of people that are going to get enriched, the people in the industry who you're going to help personally and professionally and the industry change you're about to make. These are things that you should be talking about, the title and the role, etc. All that stuff comes later on and, and start developing those relationships early on because you just don't know when you're going to need them. But I'll pause to get Anna's perspective. I think that's great advice. I have been in companies where I was not philosophical aligned with the CEO. Only once. Thank goodness it was only once. I got really lucky and then I got unlucky. You said something a little bit ago too, especially if you're switching companies, you know, you do your homework on that. This market is smaller than you think. And there is somebody who knows something (laughs) that you could hear before you make your decision, I promise you. And there's lots of people who knew things I should have known before I I took one of my roles. But it was, there has been just a, I think, stopping and understanding who they are as a person, because you have to work with them all the time. It's not like you get to go, I loved when I was in consulting, so I didn't like the company I was at, I was going to move, so it didn't matter. It's like, yeah, don't like them so much, but I'm leaving in two months. When you are in a company like this, like we talked about, there's not a hundred other people that are leaders with you. There's five, right? Or six or seven. And it gets really small, really quick. So your pond that you get to swim in, if it's toxic, you are going to breathe that in every day. So don't make sure you're understanding that environment and philosophically how they think about the future of the company to what you hit as well. I think it is, you know, are you aligned on the vision of where this company is going and do you buy into that? And is it, and what is their vision of your role? I think which is also important. People get broad views of the role. Some people like to keep their role very niche focused on where they're spending time. But if you aren't aligned with the leader on what they expect from that role, that also throws you off from day one. And I think that's what you're hitting on, Asher's. What in day one is going to throw you off? Alignment is a human. Alignment is a leader. Alignment on vision. And I think those are the things you've got to make sure you're validating. It's funny, before I joined Outreach, the CEO and I met in August of 2017. I didn't say yes to the role until January of 2018. I spent months before I I did say, I said no a lot. He's also very persistent. But it takes time. It, it really does take time. <laughs> but it was, I wanted to make sure I was validating and, and looking at other things and making sure it was the right move and feeling like we were aligned with him and the founders and, and where this company was going. 
Yeah, and I want to double take on what you just said because this is like the stuff I said is important, but what you just said is I think extremely important, which is make sure they tell you what they think your role actually is. Because this is where a lot of the, I would say when you're 75% of the way through this process, right? And you're about to get to the 100% mark. In that last mile, you have to like really come back to this question over and over again, I think, right? But you can coach us, Anna, that you need to like repeatedly like just firm this thing up so that all the way through that decision, there is consistency around what they think your role actually is. And if there's last minute tweaks and changes you want to make, because after that, there's going to be an announcement and you're going to be announced like that, right? And then that announcement is going to carry on with you until the next reorg, which is like 18 months later, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. No, and I think it's, I spent a lot of time coaching our VPs and VPs at other companies that I've been at to go, you aren't aligned with what they think this role is. So you guys need to spend some time. Let's just like talk this yes. through. Because even even at a VP level, you're the expectation of what the C-level is thinking that role is doing. Because so many people, there's two things they do. They either really, really want to be refined because in history, their experience, whatever, everybody comes in with baggage, right, of what they think something should yep. be. And you have your own baggage of what you think it should be too. If you're like, I want my role to be much broader because I like it to be broader. And then the people you're talking to are like, no, I want you to stay in this lane and don't even, don't veer outside of the yellow line. And that's going to cause conflict, right? And so that is, I think, get it done and figured out early and make sure there's alignment. And I even document that stuff. So it's funny for my new VPs coming into the company, I say, here's the three goals I need you to focus on. I need you to focus on these and nothing else. And here's the things underneath those goals that are most important to me. And if you are focusing on those things and those goals, and it's not a hundred things, it's these three, you do these three things well, you are going to win here. Then we are totally aligned that you're only doing those three things. If you start doing 10 other things that distract you from these three, we're going to have a problem. Yes. I'm so glad you do that because, you know, like sometimes I look at these lists and they're like 20 things. I know for a fact you cannot get get 20 things done. You should get one thing done and then build competency and then capability, I would say probably is the better word. Then get two things done and then get three things done and then maybe see if you can do more than that. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I think, just to the point you're making a moment ago about VPs that are are having challenges or leaders that are having challenges. They're trying to sign up for too many things because they think that makes them look like a hero and they get none of them done. And it does the absolute opposite of that when that hits. You get 20 things 30% done versus getting three things 100% done. Nobody's going to think you're a hero. Yes, guaranteed. Okay, let's talk about the next phase of the journey, right? At what point we probably need to discuss like when does this journey end? But we'll get to that, to that a little bit later. But like once you're a successful C level person, then you have options, right? You can retire, you know, that's one great option, right? Or you can give back, which people do in advisory boards, or you can actually get on to the board of directors, which is actually a very serious commitment because there's other people that are very, very, very experienced who all could be doing amazing things but are giving their time in right so the the goal is at least my understanding is and then ask about the coaches right on this as well is the folks are coming together to bring their collective experience so people could learn right but the process that one person has to go through to get ready for that like Anna, tell us more about that and I've been learning a lot about this process because I've been on that journey myself just recently. I finally decided this year, I knew I wanted to be on boards. And and one of the reasons I think people want to be on a board is a, a bit of what you said, Asha, it's about giving back, right? I've learned so much. I feel like it's like buying a house. By the time you get good at it, you don't do it anymore. It's like you got the three transactions, maybe hopefully in your lifetime where you were, had the fortunate opportunity to buy a home. And you're like, okay, I finally understand what those points and fees mean and all this stuff. And then you never buy them anymore. This is like being an executive is like that too. It's like by the time you really get good 
good at it, then you're retired. And it was like, where are all the good executives? They all retired. So I feel like I want to try to give back to help companies learn from my mistakes and the things that well and, and help them get over those hurdles, you know, fast. It's why I went to startups in the first place coming from, you know, consulting and then the bigger companies that I was at. And I, I wanted to stop and say, how do you build this from the ground up right the first time? And how do you, what are the things that you have to think about as you're scaling and the milestones that you hit that make you rethink what you need to do? And so I wanted to be able to do that. It was part of my, my retirement plan or the pre-full retirement plan, I guess. But I wanted to do at least one while I was still an operator. So I started to do some research on how do you get on boards and fortunate enough to get connected with a couple of people. There's some groups like Morgan Stanley does this, Goldman Sachs does this. They have a group that looks for people to be on boards of their companies that they invest in or that are customers of theirs. And so I didn't even realize those people existed. I didn't know they had teams there that were looking at it. Ex- and you get in. And the, and the banks had that. <laughs> right. There's a database. Like there's a database. Yeah. There's a database for women in particular because of the requirement for diversity on board. Yep. Yep. So now there's, and some of the VCs have started this and Heidi Rosen done that. There's a a lot of people who've kind of rallied around this a little bit. And there's some of these venues to learn a little bit more. But as you start to take a step back, there's something, there's actually a board bio. You actually write a bio that is very different from your resume. It was not, I did not read your picture on it. (laughs) I've never had anything out of my picture on it. But it was, there's a board bio that you do. And then you're getting these databases and and they talk a lot about, what do you want out of a board? What kind of people say to me, what, what board do you want to be on? I was like, well, I don't, I don't want some huge company. That's not what I want to help these younger companies. Um, I don't want a company that, you know, is only, you know, series A because that's too, too yep, young yep. That's or for so where fair. I think I can actually have the most impact. Well, you have to be very thoughtful. It's like looking for a new role. What, what are the five yes. criteria? What kind of technology, if it's a technology company or not, what geography it's in, are you okay with the West Coast, East Coast, London, because you might have to fly to board meetings, are you okay with that? What is the role on the board that you want to have? What does your skill set bring to the board that you think is differentiating for somebody that is going to have ROI from your presence in that room? And so you're looking at all these aspects and saying, okay, what stage, what location, what industry, even within tech, is it software, is it not, you know, all of these things. And so I had to get my head around that, which through this process, I was able to sort of really start to hone in. And there's actually questionnaires that some of these groups who look for board members like the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley's, Heidi Rosen and their team, they actually have a questionnaire you fill out that helps, that asks you these questions, literally, like, what are you open to? What do you, where do you want to do? And then it's getting your name out there. So obviously I started to let a couple people know. I knew I could only do one because I'm a, you know, operating executive still. I can't, I can't do more than one board. I have a, I have a company I'm running, but Wanted to be super particular about what that first board meant on my resume, to me personally, to the commitment that I'm making to us, a three-year commitment. So I'm signing up for three years that, you know, at least four times a year and more than that, I'm going to go spend time with them to help them think about their business. And so that's, you know, the level of commitment. But I interviewed with their board members. I So I actually got referred a company through a friend. It was weird. All of a sudden, out of the blue, they were like, are you interested in boards? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I'm starting to think about it. But I just joined the board of SeatGeek, who is uh, going up against Ticketmaster and is a super fun company and love the team and has some amazing board members and just a very different angle on tech that I love. And so, but interviewed with them and part of it is also chemistry, right? It's what we talked about before with, you know, being aligned with your leaders as a VP, as a CRO, are you aligned? Yeah. It is also the same at the board. You, we just keep repeating the same playbook. 
you know, how have you differentiated yourself? What risks have you taken? What are you bringing to their board? And then what is it, is there chemistry and the relationship that you have with them? Because you're going to be spending some intense time together and it needs to be a place that you feel really good about. So as you would look at any executive team you're working with, you look at them the same way. Am I, do I respect them? Do I respect their skill sets? Do they, I like the human beings that they are. And the same with the board members, my fellow board members, I looked at it in that same perspective and it was, uh, it was funny, the CEO of SeatGeek was like, we knew it from the first meeting, she was the right fit. And I, I felt the same. So it's definitely that those same aspects as some of those other roles we talked about. And I guess you haven't gone through this, but maybe your friends have, right? Is, and I'm sure you have thought of this, right? What if like six months down the road, you're like, hey, wait, I think I made the wrong decision. <laughs> That's a really great question. I, um... You know, the board, you're signing a contract with that company. I think it would be very difficult unless they were private. Yep. Um, if it's a private company, I think you're okay. If it's a company that's public or going to be public, I don't think that's okay. Yeah. Then I think that's when you belt and suspender and say, okay, I've made this commitment for three years. So how do I be the best board member I can in this environment? Unless you think there's like a legal litigation kind of thing that I would obviously get out. But yeah. if it's a chemistry thing, I feel like you have to honor your commitment or work with that executive team to go, I will be here until we find somebody else because I don't think this is the right fit. So that honesty is necessarily a bad thing either. Yeah. But you know, you're, you're talking about a two, three year commitment, depending on the contract that you've signed. And in my view, that's like you join the team, you need to hold up your end of the bargain now because they're counting on you. And if you didn't do the diligence, that's sort of on you. If it's, if it's not working out, you got to make sure you're doing diligence. And I did a lot, just like we talked about before, talked to a lot of people about this team yes. outside of the company who, who, you know, had perspective to make sure I was, I was getting in line with somebody that I, and a team that I had, we had aligned values. Yeah. I asked this question because, you know, the three years, once you're in it are going to fly by. But these people are going to be there for you with you for life. So you better be extremely like strict about who are you going to spend time with? Could you go on vacations with them? Could you do this? Like it's really, really, really important to do this stuff because again, from my vantage point, right? The, the stuff that I'm sharing with people is just stuff that I've picked up, right? But again, from my vantage point, you may not think that this phase will come up if you're like early stage VP, but it, it will eventually hit you. And then in that moment, this is not like some infatuation thing, right? This is actually like a CEO is going to basically go tell his people what to do next, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, you know, you're going to help them and then time's going to be done and there's going to be lots of celebrations. You're going to go to the SKO. People are going to say, well, we have our board. You want to ask them questions? All this amazing stuff is going to happen, right? At the end of the day, those six people are going to meet at some point in time in life and look back and say, wow, like, was that a good time or what? Right. And th that's the point you want to like focus on because it's it's a pretty long process and I and ha definitely have a long term view. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I do think you something you said a minute ago, I just want to double down on. You decide you this is something this is community. The board members is also a community. Right. And yep. it's a community of people that you get to meet a whole new set of people. I mean, like I said, this woman on the board at Seekeek was the ex president of the women's NBA. She was the chairman of the board at Dartmouth. I mean, she she has this incredible career. She was a CMO of the Girl Scout. The CEO from Kayak and Open Table is on this board and they're fantastic. It's just a phenomenal what I'm learning already from them and just the kind of people they are, which is is so much fun. And it is also going to impact your reputation if you are doing things that people don't view as professional and yes. holding up your end of the bargain. So I think anywhere, you know, you've got to watch the don't burn the bridges. <laughs> yep.
Take it seriously. And to double think on something that you said was, you're like, hey, I took this because I can only do one at a time. And actually it's okay. There's no pride in saying, hey, I'm on 17 boards because everybody who's sensible, who knows stuff, know that there's zero impact you're making on 17 boards, unless you're just an investor and you're there to see if the management is doing well. And then you're just like checking boxes, right? But everybody else that actually wants to make an impact, well, you can only do this like maybe for a company or maybe max two. But that's the, like, again, some learnings that I've had. What do you think, Anna? When you're in an operating role, 100%. I, I don't think you can do more than one or two. And two, I think, is a stretch. But when you're retired, which, again, in my post opera, having it, when you don't and any longer have a full time operating role, you can probably do three or four. Yes. But you will see people out there who have, you know, 10 boards, 14 boards, they are not adding any value on those. Yes. <laughs> Yes. All right. So I know we want to round this up. Is there any last piece of advice that you want to give us before we move into the next part of the podcast? No, we covered so much. That was awesome. I just think, you know, as you, each phase of your career, one of the things you always need to think about, and I, I tell my teams this, I said, your job as a leader is not to think about this quarter. It's to think about the next 36 months. And are we building the things that are going to make us successful 36 months from now? And I said, and, and five years and seven, right? But it's like, if, even if you look on a three-year horizon, are you feeling like we're building the foundation for success over the next three years? Because as a leader, that's your job. And for each of us at our roles, like right now, I mean, I'm done with this year. I moved on to fiscal 23. That starts in February for us. I'm doing the planning. I'm doing objectives. I've got my goals for my go-to-market team for next year. All that stuff has to get done now. And that's where my head is. And everybody's like, ooh, fiscal 22. I'm like, I'm done with it. I've got to move on to next year. Because I have to execute on next year and yes. I have to build out for the next year after that. Always yep. think about your career and those horizons too, because if you do want to be on a board, for example, if you do want to be a C-level executive, not everybody does. This is no like, you got to decide what's right for you. If you want to be a VP, yep. if you want to be a senior manager, if you want to be a manager, all of those things, you should stop and say, what is it that I have to do to build the skills that I need to get to that next thing and build them now? Right. Make sure, as you say, if again, what is the outcome? What is the goal? Yes. It's the same. Yep. Every single piece of life. We keep talking about it for your yes. for our customer, for your own career, for outcomes at your company. But for yourself, it's like if I want to be a VP, what is the are the skills that VP? What what you know functions do they own? What things do they have to accomplish? And how do you start gaining those skills now? And say, you want to be a board member. How do you start saying, what are things that I think would make me a great board member? How do I double down on those things? How do I think about how I highlight those things? It is always about what's next, again, until you retire. And then you don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, moving to the other sets of questions that we have for you. We ask all guests this question, right? Like, give us a resource, a book, a blog, a newsletter, a website, a video that you would recommend we listen to. You know, it's funny. I'm going to go a little old school because okay. I do love The Art of War. I, I still do. And it's funny. I read it in college and I probably read it once a year, every year since then. It is amazing what history teaches us. Everything we think is new is not necessarily new. Yep. And I, I do think there's a validation in that for us as humans and leaders that leaders back then had the same problems. Yes. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you think about you know, being successful, a lot of those, a lot of those tips and tricks that they put in the art of war are still up today. Yep. The only other, the new also, and I'll do old and then I'll do new. Yeah. The newer one is John McMahon's the qualified sales leader. I just think there's so much in that that is you're talking about. It's not about the doing; it's about knowing where you're going. Right? It's not just about you know the the movement that you're saying I'm doing an activity is like, what is that activity for? And is it accomplishing the outcome you wanted? And I love some of those themes in, in that book as well. So I think those are, I'll give you old and new. That's good. And John McMahon is the guy who came up with the medic process, right? 
Uh, yeah, and he was also this five-time CRO. Okay, fantastic. All right, do you have three people in B2B tech who are either in go-to-market or data science that you recommend we bring onto the show? So Hillary Headley of Zoom. She's their head of operations enablement. I'm actually having cocktails with her on Sunday. Ed Calman, the CRO of Seismic. Eric Schultz, who's a sales leader at Confluent. She was at New Relic. They all each have a different dynamic and a different story to tell. Yep. Yeah. Hillary's actually been on the show already. So, so it's, it's great. Maybe time to bring her back just to kind of see. She was like in the first 50 episodes we had her on and it would be good to bring, bring her back and see like, hey, what's changed since then? So. Well, this has been great. And I want to ask, like, if folks wanted to get in touch with you after the podcast, what would be a good way for them to connect with you? LinkedIn, I think is, is the best way. I have so little time for any other social media. And I am I will be totally honest, I'm not a phenomenal at LinkedIn because I forget for like four days that I haven't looked at it. <laughs> but yep. it is the one thing that I do check. When I check, I definitely check it. I've been trying to post. It's a place I try to get thoughts out at least a couple times a week. I recognize and I recommend others do this. I do an employee of the week every week on my LinkedIn. I think there's it's hard to reward and recognize people in this environment. And I'm trying to be creative on different things. I think I should could do that help with that. And so I do that once a week. Religiously, I do that. And then the other post is usually about things that are top of mind for me or things that are going on in the ecosystem that we live in. Fantastic. Well, Anna, thank you so much for spending time with us. I learned a lot. I hope our audience learned a lot. And best of luck in your journey. Thank you so much. It was so awesome. Thanks, Asher. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV.